You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. Jonah chapter 1. Oftentimes when I'm uh, up here and we're, we're walking through Scripture, I'll, I'll give you some, uh, well, some pointers on how you can get better effective in interpreting God's Word for yourself. Because our goal as a church is to help you be a self-feeder. What that means is that you can get in God's Word, you can interpret and apply it to your life. And oftentimes I want to give you some help with that, and I want to start out by doing that. Oftentimes, when we're looking at Scripture, one of the places that we can really misinterpret or misunderstand a text or a book is when we don't understand the historical context. What I mean by that is what's going on in in the timeline of history at this particular point. And often, even with the book of Jonah, uh, I've heard some things come out of this book that quite frankly are not grounded in the historical context, which means if we don't understand where Jonah's living, if we don't understand what's going on in the timeline of history, if we don't understand who these players are in this particular set of verses, then we will certainly misunderstand the text and then we will misapply the text. If you remember back when we were walking through First and Second Timothy, we talked about cutting it straight. In other words, accurately understanding, doing the hard work of interpreting the text and then applying it. If we misunderstand the text, we will misapply the text, and therefore we will not be able to mine out of this great book the gold that is here. So I want to start out this morning by by kind of getting you settled down into what's going on in Jonah's life and what's going on in Nineveh and what's going on with this powerful nation called Assyria. Keith, if you could turn me down just a little bit. I got a little bit of an echo up here. Thank you, brother. I appreciate that. There we go. So to do that, what I want to do is I want to talk about an amazing, incredible, hard thing to consider in September. So on September 11th, it has been 20 years since the terrorist attacks on the Twin Towers, the Pentagon, and that plane crashing in Pennsylvania. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? 20 years. Now, when I was growing up, my mom and dad could always, always quickly tell you where they were and what was going on in their life the day that John F. Kennedy was shot. Many of you can relate to that. There's been other things down through our lives that we know exactly where we were. We know we we can even remember the smells, the situations, the people, the conversation of of when these big world events happen. And of course, 9-11 is no different. I I can remember exactly where I was. I was working uh, in an industrial plant. I've been working there for several years and I was 30 years old. And, uh, yeah, you can do the math. That kind of tells you where I am today, right? 20 years. Um, I was 30 years old, working in a plant, and I had a meeting that morning at 9 o'clock. And I had already got there early, walked through the plant, talked to all the plant operators on what issues they had overnight, which was my daily routine. We had a 9 a.m. meeting because we had a huge project that we were working on, and all the engineers and everybody was going to be there. And So at 9 o'clock, I walk into the front office. I I didn't go in the front office much unless, of course, I had a meeting. Most of my time was spent out on the plant floor, the production floor. 
So I walk in, and the first thing I notice is that the secretary who's at the front welcome desk is not there, and that's kind of unusual. As I walk down the hallways to go upstairs, every office is empty. I thought, that's kind of odd. So I go upstairs, there's a break room upstairs, and everyone in the office was in the break room. I thought, what is going on? So I walk in there, and they've got the TV on in there. And again, this is right around 9 o'clock, so the North Tower had already been hit. And I'm trying to catch up with what's going on. So I'm standing there just like many of you were, either listening to the radio or watching TV or wherever you were at that moment. You were, you were there watching the TV, and you're trying to make sense of what you're seeing. And initially, if you remember, everybody was talking about, well, a commuter plane has flown into the tower. So early there, we're all thinking it was an accident, but what a horrible accident it is. Well, I'm, I'm standing there watching the television. The first plane hit the tower, I think it was at 8.46, if I've got my timeline right. 17 minutes later is when the second plane hit the South Tower, and I was watching it live. I was watching it just like many of you. There was a helicopter that was flying over the scene, and that helicopter was where they were transmitting the, the video signals from, and the guy, the news reporter, was talking about what was going on with the North Tower, and that helicopter was hovering over the city, and all of a sudden, out of the side of the screen, you see that jet come in, tilted at an angle, and you see the whole South Tower just explode in flames. And it's at that very moment, at that very moment, across the globe and in that little room, Every one of us knew exactly what was going on. It was not an accident. I remember the people's faces. I remember the smell in that office. I remember everything there is to remember about that moment. I remember the fear. I remember the anxiety. And then as, as time goes on, as we move on through the day and I go home and I did what you did, I turned on the TV and, and I'm watching everything that has transpired throughout the day, and then we hear the words Al-Qaeda. I didn't know who Al-Qaeda was. But as days would go on, we find out that not only was this an orchestra. Now, again, of course, we have the Pentagon, which I didn't know about until I got home. Then, then we have the plane that was plunged into the ground in Pennsylvania, and you begin to see that this was a, an incredible orchestrated event that took years of planning. And I, I, want to, I want to just describe to you the, the next feelings that, that I begin to have later in that day, later in the week, as more and more information begins to come out. I don't know about you, but I got very angry. I had some thoughts that run through my head, and I remember it distinctly of just absolute revenge. I think that's natural, don't you? When that many people died in an instant, there is that thing inside of you and it's part of God's image in us make no mistake about it because the God we serve the God who created the universe he, he is a God who's going to bring judgment make no mistake about that but us as image bearers we, we, we want justice and oftentimes in that desire for justice we can, we can think some pretty horrible things and I can't think of specifics but I can tell you that I was angry and vengeful and I wanted somebody to pay and you know what, wanting someone to pay, you know what that means, right? Uh, I, wanted, I wanted some people to pay the ultimate price. Now, as you remember all of that, I want to throw you a curveball that's going to help us understand where Jonah is. Imagine for a moment that 
in the weeks and months after all of that, and, and all the information has come out, we know for a fact that it's terrorists. We know we know for a fact that that this was an orchestrated event to kill American lives. Imagine that God wakes you up in the middle of the night and says to you, okay, I've got a task for you to do. And that task is for you to go be a missionary to Al-Qaeda. Let that sink in for just a moment. That God is unmistakably saying to you that I want you to go to this nation of people that hate your guts and have just proven it clearly because God has a message for them and that God's desire is be that they would turn from Islam, repent, come to faith in Christ, and be made whole. How does that make you feel? In the very moment of all that vengeful hatred, in that moment of, 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 of wrestling with the, what, what they had just perpetrated, how would you feel in that moment? Well, guess what? That's exactly how Jonah feels. Because guess who was the Al-Qaeda of his day? Assyria. Nineveh, its capital. We are told by historians that Assyria... This nation of Assyria that had, that had rolled over every other nation, they, they were the ones who brought Egypt to their knees. They are the ones that every other nation that had military and power and strength, Assyria would walk in there and destroy them, and, and they were so vicious. It's going to get a little detailed here, but, but I need you to understand this. Historians tell us that the Assyrians were so evil and so horrible it wasn't that they would just walk into your particular village or your particular city and just kill vast amounts of people. They wouldn't just kill you. They would take you and they would torture you publicly. And they would mock you in the streets. We have several, uh, several accounts of them taking prisoners, taking them out in the city square and cutting off all of their limbs while they're alive only to leave one arm. And that arm was to make them salute and make them shake hands with their killers while they were dying. They, they would take their prisoners and flay them alive. You know what flaying is? Skin them alive and laugh at them and mock them. The nations of Jonah's day were scared to death of Assyria. And that was the whole point. You see, what they were doing was to strike fear in every nation, to strike fear in every single village, that when the Assyrians come to town, most often what would happen, people would just surrender. But even surrendering didn't save you of the pain and the agony. Even if you surrendered, they didn't care because they were brutal and vicious. So the Al-Qaeda of Jonah's day happens to be none other than the very people that God is going to speak to Jonah and say, go, I've got a message for them. Now you know why Jonah has the struggle that he's got. Now you know the emotions that he was experiencing. Now you know why Tarshish begins to look awfully inviting. As we get into the story, you'll see what I'm talking about. Most of our life here in America is spent avoiding difficulty, pain, 
I mean, think about it. Most of the friends that you have, maybe at work, their week-to-week goal, whether it's said or unsaid, is to avoid all kinds of pain, all kinds of suffering, all kinds of difficulty. I appreciate what Chris just prayed in his prayer a little while ago. If you, if you were listening, he said that, that oftentimes we're, we're, we're looking for comfort. We, we try to find this zone we call the comfort zone and stay in it as long as possible. But if you've been following Jesus any amount of time, you found out that Jesus isn't on the same page with you about your comfort. If you're not following Jesus, you found out that Jesus is not all about your comfort. As a matter of fact, that might be one of the reasons you're not putting your faith in Jesus because you know enough about Christianity that on the backside of following Jesus, of confessing him as Lord and Savior, on the backside of that is picking up a cross. And I understand that. God's going to call you to do something difficult. It may not be to this level. It may not be going halfway around the world. But God's going to ask you to do something difficult. For some of you right now, you put your faith in Jesus, but you haven't followed that with baptism. And God's been asking you to be baptized by immersion, and you simply won't do it. Maybe that's the next step. Maybe God's been calling you into full-time vocational ministry, calling you to be a missionary, or simply calling you to bring Jesus up at your workplace. God has this, has this consistent action in my life. He's always asking me to do hard things. How do we respond when he does? How do you respond? Let's take a look at how Jonah responded. Look at verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh. Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So Jonah is a prophet. Now you may not know this, but Jonah has a little bit of history back in 2 Kings chapter 14. His name is mentioned one time there. And he's mentioned in the context of Jeroboam II, who was the king of the northern tribe of Israel. If you remember, the, the, the nation of Israel split into two. You had the southern kingdom, Judah. You had the northern kingdom stationed in Israel. And, and they, were, they were worshiping in two different locations. And as you know, as you walk through First and Second Kings, you have kings in the south and kings in the north. There is animosity between the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. And Jonah just happened to be called as a prophet in that northern kingdom under the kingship of a guy named Jeroboam II. There's only a couple of verses there about Jonah, but it's exactly the same Jonah that we have here. So Jonah had already been called to do a hard thing. And that is to be a prophet to that northern kingdom to speak the truth to them in a time where they needed to hear the truth. So Jonah had already been doing that. As a matter of fact, right before Jonah is called to be a prophet, the great Elisha had just passed away. So Jonah, you may have not thought of this or may have not caught this, but Jonah is kind of a successor to Elisha. He's also a contemporary of Amos and Hosea. They're all working during this same period of time. But Jonah, although he's been called to be a prophet and has a role to be played out in his life as being the mouthpiece of God, he could have never imagined that God would ever call him to go to Nineveh. It's one thing to go to the northern kingdom of Israel. I mean, you've got your, your friends and compatriots there. You, you can go speak a message to them, but now Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, the, the very very headwaters of death and destruction and brutality. God wants him to go there. 
Look at verse 2. He says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Now, that great city means it's a large city. By all means, yes, Nineveh was a very large city, but I don't think that's what he's talking about here. He's talking about great influence, great power, great fear that was struck into the land by this particular city and this particular group of people. And he says, their evil has come up before me. God sees exactly what is going on with the Assyrians. He sees exactly what is going on in Nineveh. But here's the amazing, incredible, beautiful thing, that even with all of the pain and all of the affliction and all of the brutality, God still extends grace to a city that certainly didn't deserve it. Not only is he aware of what's going on, but God consciously says to his prophet, I want you to go to that land and I want you to tell them about a message of judgment with the hopes that they will repent. See, we have a critical moment here in the narrative. The critical moment is, is that God's calling Jonah to do a very hard thing. A thing that he doesn't want to do. A thing that that Jonah absolutely repudiates. Now, why, as we see, why is it that Jonah doesn't want to go? Why, why is it that, that Jonah simply does not? There's all kinds of reasons, but I want to point out just a couple. Let's read on, verse 3. But Jonah, now I want you to notice that. God says, Jonah, you are my prophet. You have a role to play. You are. You have made a commitment to serve me as my prophet, as my spokesperson. So therefore, God says to Jonah, Jonah, I've got a task for you to do, and it's to go to a place I know you don't want to go, but you're going to go there, and you're going to proclaim a message to me, for me, to those people of judgment so that they will repent. Notice verse 3, but Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish. I don't know how much wrestling Jonah did. We don't have any indication. But I will tell you from the reading of the text, the clear reading of the text, it doesn't seem like Jonah wrestled with this a whole lot. It doesn't appear as though Jonah spent weeks and months wrestling with whether he should go or whether he shouldn't. It seems to me that as soon as God speaks this command to Jonah, Jonah's like, "Uh -uh. (laughs) uh-uh. I'm not having any part of Nineveh. Jonah is somewhere near Joppa. Joppa is a coastline city north of Jerusalem, Judah, it's right on the coast. It's a port city. We don't know where Jonah is, but he's somewhere near Joppa. So as soon as this command comes from God and he understands what the command is, he goes to Joppa because Joppa is a port city, and Joppa is where he can get on a boat, and that boat can take him as far away as he can possibly go. Notice what he does. He says he wants to he rises, he goes to Tarshish to flee from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa. He found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Remember I've told you before, repetition means something. He's fleeing from the presence of the Lord. He's fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Get this. Wherever he was near Joppa, Nineveh is about 550 miles northeast across land. But Jonah is going to get on a boat, and his destination is Tarshish. Tarshish is 2,500 miles to the west across the Mediterranean Sea. As a matter of fact, in Jewish culture, Tarshish was like the edge of the world. Tarshish was like the the edge of known civilization. It's actually on the very southern coastline of Spain. 
So, so get this, Jonah, instead of traveling 550 miles northeast to Nineveh, he gets on a boat and he's going to go 2,500 miles to Tarshish, and in the Jewish mind, that is far as anybody could ever possibly go. I mean, on the other side of, of Tarshish is just vast emptiness of nothing. He, he's, he's going as far as he can to get away from going to Nineveh. Why does he do that? Why is Jonah running? Now, I've heard most of my life in the book of Jonah that he's fleeing because he's afraid of Nineveh. He's afraid of, of the power of the Assyrians. He's, he's afraid of, of going there. And, and yes, I do believe that it's an element. I really do. I think, I think that at the core of Jonah, he's scared to death to go deal with these people. I do believe that, but I don't think that's the real reason. Matter of fact, this book tells us the real reason. Turn to chapter 4. Chapter 4. Now, we're going to get to this text in a few weeks, but I want to go ahead and open this can of worms now. I want you to see why Jonah ran. Jonah chapter 4, and let's look at uh, verse 1 through 2. Now, this is later on in the narrative. Later on, you know the story. We'll walk through it in the coming weeks, but not to jump too far ahead, but get this. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is, this, that is why I made haste to flee. So notice this. Right here in verse 2, Jonah tells us exactly why he ran. He says, This is why I made haste to flee Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Here's why Jonah ran. Jonah ran is because he didn't believe those people in Nineveh deserved the grace of God. At the core of who Jonah was, Jonah did not want the Ninevites to, to respond to God's grace. Jonah had decided in his mind that they don't need to hear the, the opportunity to repent. They don't need to hear about God's judgment. As a matter of fact, they deserve God's judgment, so I'm not going. Yes, he's afraid, but more than anything, he's afraid that God will do exactly what he says he's going to do extend grace to a group of people that Jonah has decided in his heart doesn't deserve it. So Jonah doesn't love the people that God loves. And yes, they were a hard group of people to love. I get that. So Jonah is running towards Tarshish. He pays his fare, he gets on the boat, and he's heading to the west when God has called him to the north. Look what happens next, verse 4. Things are going to get even more tense. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so this ship was threatened to break up. So Jonah gets on the ship. The ship leaves port. They're out in the Mediterranean Sea. I don't know how far they went before this storm hit. I don't imagine it was very far, although it was far enough for Jonah to go down into the bow of the ship. And guess what Jonah's doing? He's asleep. He's knocked out. Now, now God healed, throws this storm upon the Mediterranean Sea for the purpose of getting Jonah's attention. I mean, that's exactly what God is doing here. God is saying, okay, you're going to run and disobey. You have made a commitment to be my prophet. You have, you have already been doing the job. And then when I call you to do something hard, you're going to run 2,500 miles in the opposite direction? And God says, okay. I guess it's time to get your attention. So he drops a big old storm on the sea, and, and the storm was such 
to a degree that the mariners, the one who's been uh, sailing on this ocean, they immediately realized that this storm was supernatural. That it was not just a storm, it's the storm. It's the storm that you don't survive. It's the storm that causes you to call out to every God that you can think of. These people are scared to death, and Jonah is asleep in the boat. Look at verse 5. The mariners were afraid, and they each cried out to his God. Look at that. Every, every mariner on that boat is calling out to every God they can think of because they know this storm is not just your average storm. They know that there's something supernatural here, and they don't know the God that Jonah knows. So they're just calling out to any false God that can offer any help, which, of course, is no help at all. Jonah, he's taking a nap. So they begin to throw stuff overboard. They begin to try to save themselves because when all you worship are false gods, you have nothing else but yourself, right? If, if all you've got is a false god who's no god at all, then it's left up to you. These men had prayed. Nothing had happened because nothing will ever happen when you pray to a false god. Nothing will ever happen when you put your trust in something other than Jehovah God, the creator of the universe. So the only thing they had left was their own devices, their own abilities. And what do they do? Okay, guys, we, we got to save ourselves because nobody else is. There's no God out there listening to us, apparently. So they start throwing stuff over the board, over, over into the sea. And they hurl the cargo, it says in verse 5. But Jonah, he's down in the inner part of the ship asleep. So the captain came. Now, I would imagine at this point, the captain realizes that, hey, we got one guy on board who's not doing anything. Where is he? Why would Jonah not be up on the deck of the ship doing what he could do to do his part? They, they, they don't know where he is. So they go down in the bottom of the ship, and where do they find him? He's asleep in a hammock or curled up on the bottom of the boat. This boat's getting thrown all over the sea, and Jonah's asleep. How do we make sense of that? Well, was Jonah so confident that he had flown, that he got away from the presence of the Lord, that he could finally rest? Maybe. I think he has so much confidence that, that he's now done with this whole thing of going to Nineveh that he's just going to go to sleep. Is it, is it because Jonah simply just didn't care? Is it because Jonah thought that he was beyond the reach of God? Don't really know. I just know this, that for a man to be asleep in a boat in the middle of a storm, it says something about him. It says something about where he is. And remember, the storm has as its purpose to correct Jonah. The, the purpose of the storm is, is that Jonah would see the power of God, that this has to be Jehovah God who's bringing correction into my life, and that, that Jonah would repent. But we know that Jonah doesn't. Not yet. So the captain, verse 6, came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? <laughs> Arise. Do you have a God you could call out to? It's interesting that they don't really know who Jonah is. They don't know who Jonah worships. They don't know Jonah's God. It appears as though Jonah's been pretty quiet about all that, hasn't he? And that's exactly what happens when we're running from God. We get very quiet about the God that we say we love. We get very quiet about that. They don't even know who he is. They don't know he's a Hebrew. They don't know he worships Jehovah God. They just know that he shouldn't be asleep. And if he's got a God, please call out, because we've called out to all ours and nothing has happened. If anything, it's getting worse. The ship is about to break apart. Perhaps the, the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Look at that. That last verse, or last part of verse 6. 
They're calling out Jonah. Jonah, please call out to your God because maybe your God's the God and maybe he'll do something. These mariners know something is wrong here. They're scared. They're praying to their gods. They're throwing stuff overboard. Jonah seems to be a little different. So they confront Jonah, and they begin to try to figure out, find the source of the cause of this problem. They, these mariners, which is amazing to me, they are, they are godless individuals as far as following the true God. They're not following Jehovah God, yet they have more spiritual insight on this boat in the middle of the storm than Jonah, the prophet of God. They know something's up. They know that this is supernatural. They know that there's some God. They don't know who he is, but they know some God is up to this, and they know that somebody on that boat is probably the root cause. That's a whole lot more insight than Jonah's got. So they begin to cast lots. What does that mean? Well, it's a kind of a game they would play where they're trying to determine the will of the supernatural God that's out there. Try to determine who's at fault. Well, guess what? They cast lots, and it fell to Jonah. It pointed out that Jonah is the source of the problem. So they confront Jonah, and guess what Jonah does? Well, he confesses. He says in verse 9, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven. Now, Jonah, do you really? Jonah, do you really fear the Lord God of heaven? Because so far, we haven't seen a lot of fear of him. We've seen more fear of repentance coming to Nineveh. We've seen more fear of Assyria, but we haven't seen the fear of God until the storm hits and until he has to confess the reality that he is a follower of God. Now, all of a sudden, he's like, it's me. And I'm a follower of God. And not only that, because y'all need to know I'm running from him. I'm on the run from God. And Jonah, it doesn't say this in the text, but I would imagine that Jonah could have said, I was asleep, I was doing fine until this storm hit and y'all woke me up. I'm, I'm good. Matter of fact, Jonah would have probably fell in the ocean after the ship broke apart, not even knowing what's going on. But nonetheless, this storm is there because of Jonah, not because of those mariners. And he admits that. And then Jonah has a solution. It's an awful solution, but it's one nonetheless. Verse 11, then they said to him, what will we do to you that the sea may quieten down? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. That's certain death. Certain death. In a storm like this, there's no way a man's going to survive that. And what's amazing to me is the mariners are like, no, 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 we're not going to do that. Let's, let's try some other things first. And they keep trying to throw stuff overboard. They keep trying to row. As a matter of fact, they put more emphasis into trying to row and trying to get the land. They can't get there. And then all of a sudden, everybody kind of comes to the same conclusion. Johnny, you got to go. <laughs> and they said, look at verse 14, the mariners called out to the Lord. Now notice this. The mariners now are beginning to realize that the gods they worship are no gods at all. That's, that's what you find out when trouble comes. When, when trouble comes, the bad doctor's appointment, the, the, the bad diagnosis, the, the breaking up of your marriage, the you know, financial destruction, it's in those moments you find out really who your God really is. And you find out that it's through pain and suffering that the God of this universe is the only God because you've been running other things all throughout that journey. But it's when trouble comes. With these mariners, trouble has come, and they realize that the Lord God that Jonah worships is the one that they should be praying to. And notice what they do. 
They ask for the Lord not to hold them guilty for what they're about to do. These mariners are showing more response to God than God's man. They, they are showing more faith on this boat than Jonah is showing. Verse, it says here that they tuck Jonah and they throw him overboard. And guess what happens? The Mediterranean calms down. You see, this was all about Jonah. From the time he got on the boat, from the time he, he said no, to the time he went to Joppa, to the time he got on the boat, he might have been sleeping well, but God was not done with him because God had a command on his life, go to Nineveh. Verse 17, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And just to kind of set the stage for next week, because we're going to be telling about chapter 2 next week, just let me just be very clear here. I truly and completely believe that there was a fish and he swallowed Jonah. It's not an analogy. It's not some kind of illustration. It's not some kind of poetry. God directed a fish to swim to Jonah and to swallow him whole. And yes, I completely and firmly believe that Jonah was in the belly of that fish for three days. You know why I believe that? Because God's word says that's what happened. So let's talk about this story a little bit. Just a few things I want to bring to your attention that comes right out of this story we just walked through. The first thing I want you to understand, and I think this is very important for us today right now where we are, that the God we serve is fully and completely aware of the evil that's going on down here on this blue planet. Why is that important? Because evil seems to be growing and lurching and, and expanding its footprint upon this planet, right? I mean, you can't turn on the news. It's all bad. You can't read a website. It's all bad. And, and we've gotten to the place where right is being called wrong and wrong is being called right. We're in that place. And, and as, as God fears, as Jesus followers, not all of us in this room are, but for those of you who are, it is, it is bringing pain to your heart to see where our country is and where it's heading. You see the trajectory. You see where the trends are heading. You see where the pressure is going to come upon the church. And if you're not careful in those moments, you're going to think, God, where in the world are you? Maybe you've already thought that. Maybe you've already prayed that. But I want you to know how in tune God was to what was happening in Nineveh and Assyria. He knew exactly what was going on. He knew every deed that they've done. He knew every, every person that they had put the day. He knew that, every bit of that. But I think what is even more astounding is that God would choose to extend grace to this city through Jonah. But you've got to understand, God, God is fully and completely aware of all that's going on, not only in the world as a whole, our country individually, but in your life specifically. He knows what you're facing. He knows, he knows what you're going through in your marriage. He knows what you're going through with your kids or your grandkids. He knows what you're going through in your job. He knows what evil's been perpetrated against you. He knows who stabbed you in the back. He knows exactly who's lying and gossiping about you. He knows all of it, and he's at work in your life. And you've heard me say it probably a 100 times. I'm going to say it again. God is at work in some 10,000 ways in your life, and you may only be aware of one, if that. Look at what God is doing here. He's orchestrating a storm. He's, he, he's, he's bringing Jonah to this place 
a full commitment. He orchestrated a fish to go swallow him. God is at work in Jonah's life, and God is at work in your life. But my goodness, the culture in which we live can get our focus off of that so quickly. So first thing I want you to remember is that God is fully aware of the evil in, your wor- in, in this world, in your world, in your home, in your job. He's fully aware of it, and he's at work. Secondly, he has the right to call us to carry his message to the world. Jonah, probably early in this, probably between when God spoke and when Jonah decides to head to Joppa, there might have been this thought that ran through Jonah's mind. Well, God, where do you get off telling me to go to Nineveh? If you go back and you look at Moses and you look at some of the other key leaders in the Old Testament, you'll find out that there's always this questioning, Moses in particular. Is, is Moses and God at that burning bush experience is having this exchange, and Moses finally gets to the point where he says, God, just send somebody else. But God has every right as creator and sustainer of this universe, to point his finger at you and say to you, this is what I want you to do. He has that right. As a Christ follower, you have already signed on. When you put your faith in Jesus, you already surrendered every right to your life. Remember, a few weeks ago, we talked about that we've died, and and, and Jesus has resurrected us back to new life, that you have given up all rights to your life. So not only does God have the right, but you've given the permission when you said, Jesus is Lord. You know, sometimes profound things come out of my mouth that I didn't even plan, and sometimes they're worth saying again. That's just the Holy Spirit. Listen. Not only does God have the right over your life, but you've given permission. You've made him Lord. You've surrendered to him. You gave up all rights to your income, to your time. That's exactly what you did when you surrendered to Christ. That's what it means to surrender. But we also know that it's a daily surrender, right? That I've got to die daily to myself so that I can live out what Christ is calling me to do. But he has every right to call you to do his will. You are either the messenger or you're the audience. Jonah is the messenger. He'd already surrendered to that call as prophet. But now Jonah has had to become the audience. And I'm convinced that you're one of two. You're either the one who's being obedient to God and going out and sharing the message, which is the great commission work we've been called to, or you're the audience. You're the one that needs to receive the word. You're the one that needs to receive the message and either be saved and be redeemed and be set right with God, or you're the one that's been called to go share the message. But there's this other place where you've been born again and you've been sent but you're looking for a boat to go to Tarshish. He has every right to call you to carry his message to the world. Third, faith rather than fear should be our first response. Isn't it amazing that for those of you who have been following Jesus for a while, that Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the Godhead Trinity has been faithful in your life over and over and over and over again. He has answered prayers in your life. He's done things in your life that you can't even, you didn't even ask for. He's done abundantly more than you can ever, ever think or ask in your life. 
But yet at the very moment when, when the Holy Spirit says, I want you to share Jesus with this person, what is our first response? Oh, no, I'm, can't bring that up. That's too costly. I'm afraid. Lord, I don't think you'll be there for me. I don't think you'll give me the words to say. I don't, I don't, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. And, and it may be that you've sat in a church for 25 years. You have heard the gospel over and over and over again. You have heard invitation after invitation. You've heard it in song. You've heard it in scripture. You've heard it in sermons. You've heard it in small group. And after 20 years of following Jesus, Jesus steps into your life and says, it is time for you to bring Jesus up to that person. And our first response is what? Fear? So we're not sure how it's all going to work out. Really? Do you think that's going to hold water when you stand before Jesus and have to give an account for your life? I can promise you that it won't. Why is it that our first response is fear? <laughs> Why is it our first response is, oh, I don't know how this is going to turn out when God has been faithful all of these years? But our first response is, oh, no, 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 I can't do that. I'll tell you why. Goes back to the same thing Jonah was seeking, seeking comfort. Just an easy life. Don't rock the boat. Be around the faith, but no, I don't get too radical about it. Fourth, our disobedience affects you and others. Look, there's always a ship leaving for Tarshish. You understand what I'm saying, right? When, when, when the Lord says, this is what I want you to do, there is always a Tarshish to flee to, always. And fear, anxiety, just a lack of concern will drive us to the port of Joppa to get us on a boat, pay our fare, and head the opposite direction. But you got to understand something. That disobedience affects you, and it affects others. How does it affect you? Well, maturity in Christ, growing up in faith, means that we are consistently, over time, Surrendering to him. The reason so many Christians are still immature in their faith is because they've never been obedient. They, they just simply go through life trying to, to get things their way all the time, and they've never grown up in Christ. And the reason they've never grown up is because they've never been obedient. Sometimes it's to the first step of obedience, which is baptism. Yeah, I came back to that because it's extremely important. It doesn't just affect you. It affects those rain. You see those mariners there? They didn't sign up for a storm. You know why they're in it? Because Jonah's on their boat. And when God begins to correct Jonah, sometimes that correction spills over in other people's lives. The way you're living and disobedience has effect on everyone else. It affects your marriage. It affects your kids. It affects your grandkids. It affects your job. It affects everything. And God will continue to put that pressure on you, follower of Jesus, until he gets your attention. I would dare say that it would be better for you to respond in the storm before the fish shows up. It would be a whole lot better to respond while the storm's hitting before the fish comes because it's affecting everybody in your household. And then finally, we are safer in God's will than out of his will. You are safer in God's will than you are out of it. Pastor, what if, what if God was to call me to, to be a missionary and, and he wants me to go to you know, Haiti or Zimbabwe or somewhere on the other side of the planet. And man, I'm going to have to go over there and live in a dirt hut. And I'm going to have to, you know, serve people and learn a language. What, what if God calls me that? I mean, that's like the big thing, right? It's like God calling you to be a foreign missionary somewhere. What would I do with that? Well, let me tell you, 
that you'd be better off in that dirt hut in Haiti in the will of God than living in a mansion in Beverly Hills out of it. You'd be better off in that dirt hut in Haiti serving out God's will for those people and the message of the gospel. You'll be happier. You'll be, you'll be far more joyful. You'll be growing in faith than living in the richest mansion in Beverly Hills outside of his will. You see, this is one of the great lies we believe. Oh, that God's will is going to cost me too much. Oh, that God's will is going to be hard. Oh, it's going to be painful. Oh, it's going to be difficult. It is going to be difficult. It's going to be painful. It's going to be painful for Jonah to go to Nineveh. Here's the thing. The lie we believe is that somehow God's not going to take care of us when God has been taking care of us our entire life. You see, the lie we believe from Satan is that somehow if we step out and follow God in faithfulness and obedience, that somehow God's just going to abandon us out there. We have to figure it out on our own. The exact opposite is true. God meets us right there in that place of obedience. He is as alive in us and as real to us in those moments of obedience than any other time in our life. And it's in those times of life we make these great strides forward in putting down roots in the kingdom. Lost person, hear me clearly. Hear me very clearly on this. God is trying to get your attention. He's doing it through sermons. He's doing it through music. He's doing it through people. He's doing it through people. It seems like everywhere you go, Jesus just keeps coming up. You know why that is? It's because God is bringing some storms in your life to get your attention that it's time to follow him and quit playing games. But I can tell you right now that if you reject the gospel and you reject Jesus as a lost person, there is a day coming where you will wish like everything you could be back in that place and have that opportunity to respond, but there will be no hope. Disciple of Jesus, God is bringing storms into your life. Not all the things you're going through is because of some kind of disobedience, but oftentimes it can be. Take a look at your life. If you've got storms swirling all in your life, could it be that there's something that God has asked us to do that we have not done? And God is bringing this stuff into our life to get our attention because he loves you. He's a good father, as we just sung about, and he wants the best for you. The best for you is his will. The best that God has for you is to follow him in obedience. The best that God has for you is to live out your life for him. That's the lie we're leaving from Satan is that God can't be trusted. His will is the best place for you to be. And if you're anywhere else, God has the right to get your attention. And I would say to you, it would be a whole lot better for you to respond in obedience and repentance in the storm before the next thing comes. Because make no mistake about it, God is a good father. But he's persistent. If you're his child, he's coming after you. Father in heaven, it is with great um, humility that in this moment of commitment that we are able to give this congregation an opportunity to respond to your word. There are two groups of people in this building and only two. Those who have come from death and the life and those who are still in death. And so, Father, there is a next step for each one of those people. If the one who's still in death, the one who is still not surrendered, Father, you have done everything that needs to be done. The gift has been given. All that must be now done is that that gift be received by faith. And their life will forever change. For the one Lord who's crossed from death in the light and has begun to walk with you through Christ. Um, Father, there are always boats leaving for Tarshish. There's always plenty of opportunities to go the opposite direction. 
But Father, I pray and I ask that this morning we would see that the best place we could ever be is in the center of your will. So Father, maybe it's repentance, surrender all over again, whatever it may be, have your will in your way during this time of commitment. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist.